This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 2.40, No Rest for the Wicked, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and unfortunately the acquisition that we mentioned in our April 1st announcement did fall through after some unsavory details about Milkshake Duck came to light, so MSB is once again free, independent, and brought to you by viewers like you. Did you see someone on Facebook commented that they could tell that I was like... You were you trying, were smiling through your voice. Trying not to laugh. I knew I was the weak link there. I accept <laughs> it. And I'm Nina, new to Zeta, and thinking that some of these outfits wouldn't look out of place on a contemporary runway, especially Fa's red suit and purple shirt. Which is a little weird and charming because that's absolutely the most dated outfit in the bunch. It's just that it's come back around again. Oh yes. I feel like I saw outfits that looked like that on recent runway shows. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 288 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Zykron Vintoria, Lohengrin, Nick W, CDY, and Chris S. If you'd like to support the podcast but can't afford to spend money right now, write us a review. Reviews improve the rate at which we show up in searches on various podcast apps and help us reach new listeners. As for things in New York, well, we continue much the same as last week. It turns out that when you barely leave the house, there isn't much new to talk about. I made a coconut coffee cake. We call our families a lot. <laughs> I managed to get Tom to start playing Animal Crossing with me. And yes, he is planning on building the giant robot. The stay-at-home order has been extended two weeks, and they are expecting cases here to peak in mid to late April. A big thank you to those of you doing essential work out there. And to the rest of you, stay home as much as you possibly can. We hope you're all staying healthy and sane-ish. And remember, while you're being excellent to each other, be kind to yourselves, too. This week, we discuss Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, episode 39, By the Lake. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers Fortress Switzerland and an indirect return to the subject of kissing in Japan. But first, let's tune in to TNN. Good evening, and welcome to The Truth Zone. I'm Lieutenant Nina Nina's daughter. Lieutenant Tom Thompson is still out today, spending more time with his family. Everyone is asking, should we all move to space, or is Quattro Bagina a callous murderer and spacenoid supremacist who wants to radicalize your children? Up next, I'll be hosting an all-new episode of Both Sides, the objective debate program where experts from both sides argue and you decide, exclusively on TNN. Tonight, joining by satellite from the Gate of Zidane is hero, motivational speaker, and warrior philosopher, His Excellency Jamitov Hyman himself. 
and representing the terrorists who want to destroy the Federation and murder you in your bed via satellite from an undisclosed location like a coward, Karaba figurehead, war criminal, and very short man Hayato Kobayashi will attempt to justify his many crimes. All that and more when we return. But first, a message from our sponsors. Lou, I think there's something wrong with the teleprompter. It's not scrolling. Lou, can you tell me why it's not scrolling? I had to describe that Hayato guy from memory. I had to do it live, Lou. Like those losers who should be dead. Those space-loving... Amateurs over at the AUG Broadcasting Channel. And my coffee is cold. Someone send me an intern with a cup of hot coffee so I can throw it in their face. Lou? Lou? Where is everybody? Oh no. No gods. No gods. No master. No masters. No lieutenants. No lieutenants. Captain Basque, sir. It's Lieutenant Nina's daughter from TNN. I have bad news, sir. No, no, sir. It's not another AU broadcast. Worse than that. Uh, no, not as bad as that. The interns have gone on strike. Interns of the world unite! We have nothing to lose but our college credit! I think they want to be paid, sir. No, sir, I don't know why their trust funds aren't good enough. Maybe they've been buying too many lattes. Yes, sir. Understood, sir. Extreme measures? I'll see to it personally, sir. I don't know who raised these interns to be so ungrateful after everything we've done for them. But we'll see how long their strike lasts after I offer them a free pizza party and yoga in the break room. And God is my witness, I'll never get my own coffee again. And now the recap for By the Lake. Abawaku, renamed the Gate of Zedan, has been repurposed by the Titans and become part of Grips, along with Luna too. There, Basque and Haimem discuss next steps, what to do about Shar's speech, how to manage the Earth government, the plan to defeat Ayug, and whether something should be done about Sirocco and Axis. The Argama arrives at Colony 13. Part of the neutral side too, it is the perfect place to replenish their supplies, repair the ship, and give the crew a chance to rest. While Emma goes to monitor their supply shipments, Camille, Fa, Shinta, and Kum take the linear car from the spaceport into the colony to sightsee and relax a while. In the same compartment sits Titan's cyber-new-type pilot, Rosamia Badam. She makes notes, talking to herself about the possibility of secret manufacturing facilities to supply Ayug here. Although she senses something when they board, she doesn't seem to notice the group from the Argama until they exit the car when, looking up and seeing Camille, Rosamia says to herself, Big Brother? Brother, is that you? She follows behind them. Patrolling in the Hyakushiki, 
Shar investigates the outside of the colony. Several mobile suits have been ambushed in this area in the last few days, and he thinks he might find whoever is responsible. Hiding in an orange orchard in one of the colony's food production modules, two Titans pilots, Hyzax at the ready, monitor the spaceport and activities near the colony. On spotting the Hyakushiki, they rush to their mobile suits. If they take Shar out, he will be their tenth kill. Surrounded by beautiful mountains and woods, quaint farmhouses and fields full of cows, Camille and Fa chase after the rambunctious Shintan Kum. At a dirt road, they find a horse-drawn cart for rent and decide to take it down to the lake. Just as they are leaving, Rosamia jumps in, clings to Camille's arm, and declares him to be her brother. When Fa cuts in, demanding to know who she is and what she's doing, she asks back, Are you my brother's girlfriend? You're just as I pictured. The two of you are perfect together. The horse knows the way and leads them on without any direction. Under her breath, Fa asks Camille what he thinks he's doing and accuses him of enjoying the attention from this beautiful, mysterious young woman. But Camille insists he's just trying to figure out who she is. He doesn't feel threatened by her at all or get any sense that she's an enemy. So Fa presses Rosamia again and Rosamia produces a small wallet with a picture inside, a group of three children, the oldest of whom looks remarkably like Camille, while the second looks like Rosamia herself. In the photo, a younger boy stands in front of them. I lost my younger brother in the colony drop, she tells them, but my older brother was never found. Fa and Camille have to admit the resemblance to the boy in the photograph. They can't explain it, but Camille is certain he's never seen Rosamia before. A group of swans paddle by on a nearby lake, and Camille looks up to see a shadow on the ceiling of the colony. The shadow is the Hyakushiki, flying along the outside. Char pauses, thinking he senses Amuro nearby, and is almost taken out by the two titans. He just barely manages to dodge their first shot and takes off, with the two Hyzaks following close behind. Camille, Fa, Rosamia, and the kids have left the cart and are now rowing boats across a lake. While Fa and Camille bicker, Rosamia and the kids reach the other end of the lake, and Kum hops out of the boat to talk to a young girl playing on the shore. The girl comes back to the boat, and it is none other than Mineva Zabi. No one there recognizes her. She plays with Shintan Kum, strangely haughty for such a young child, but laughing and having fun all the same until her guards and Haman appear on shore, demanding she be brought back immediately. Rosamia thinks that Haman has the air of an enemy and wonders if she is an Ayug. On the outer surface of the colony, Shar manages to grab hold of one of the enemy mobile suits, the Hyakushiki's arm looped around the Hyzak's gun. Until now, all three pilots have been very careful not to damage the colony but the grappled pilot fires and misses, blasting a hole in Colony 13. Air rushes out, and the two Hyzaks escape into the colony. Char hesitates to follow them into the fragile, neutral colony full of non-combatants, but they shoot at him again, this time from the inside, and puncture the plating once more. Char gives chase and manages to destroy one, but his shot causes the reactor to explode. Pausing to patch this new hole and prevent more air from escaping, he thinks to himself that he will have to stop the next one without damaging its reactor. The mobile suits roar over the lake. Haman sees the Hyakushiki and thinks that Ayug must be trying to kidnap Mineva. 
One of the guards scoops the girl up and runs her back to a nearby farmhouse. Camille recognizes Haman and Minevah as they leave and wonders if Shar knows that they are here. Another of Minevah's guards retrieves a mobile suit from inside a nearby silo and busts his way out. Trying his best not to damage the colony any further, Shar cuts the arm off the remaining Hyzak and destroys its camera and demands the pilot exit the mobile suit. Yet while he waits, the Axis pilot fires on them both, destroying the Hyzak and putting another hole in Colony 13. The rush of air sucks the Axis mobile suit out into space, and once it's clear, Shar fires and destroys it. He seals the hole as best he can and returns to the Argama. Camille, Fa, Rosamia, and the kids manage to get to safety, despite the mobile suit battle going on around them, and they all return to the Argama. Shar will be questioned by police, but doubts that he will be punished in any way. After all, the Titans had been ambushing pilots in the area for days, and they instigated this more recent fight. Rosamia continues to cling to Camille, insisting that he is her long-lost older brother. No one on the Argama knows who she really is, but Emma and Shar have a bad feeling about her. On second watching of this episode, I'm now pretty certain that the birds in the lake were actually geese, not swans, like we thought they were on the first uh, watch through. So now I'm really disappointed that we didn't take the opportunity to name this our Untitled Goose episode. Oh, ho, 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 ho. it's funny that you should bring up there being geese rather than swans, because it feels like a callback to the episode where Lala's at the Institute, which is on a lake, and she's watching the swans fly by. The swans, or the <laughs> geese, or whatever, <laughs> you <laughs> uh, fly by in a big group right before Minerva appears on the scene. Minerva hmm. and Lala, both people who trusted Char to look after them, Hmm. And who he's failed. <laughs> hmm. It's a really interesting connection. And just because they're geese and not swans doesn't mean that they aren't still meant to draw the line between these two events. It's interesting you should mention that because I was thinking about the ambiguity around who Quattro senses oh, when he's yeah. in Takushiki. Because he says, oh, this feels like Amaro, which... Quattro, everybody feels like Amaro to you. Every time he meets a new new type, he thinks like, oh, could it be Amaro Ray? It's like he sees Amaro everywhere he looks. <laughs> but that aside, he seems to say at the end, oh, I must have been feeling Haman Karn. But he knows what Haman feels like. Yes. Usually when he comes close to Haman Karn, he has lines of dialogue like, Oh, could it be that woman? Right. He knows what her presence feels like. I did not believe that he had mistaken her for Amaro. I wondered if he was sensing either Rosamia or Minerva. I mean, I think that makes sense. We can imagine that he might have some familiarity with how Minerva feels. But if Minerva is just now coming into her own, she could be exuding a presence that is completely new to Quattro. He also, with the exception of their very brief reunion, uh, hadn't seen her in like seven years. Yeah. 
And also, he doesn't like pay a lot of attention to people who <laughs> aren't already on his radar as potential threats or resources. So when Minerva was like a two-year-old child or however old she was when he left, uh, he probably wasn't paying that much attention to her. Yeah, I have a whole list in my notes of, well, it's not Camille because he knows what Camille feels <laughs> like. And it's probably not Haman because he knows what Haman feels like. Maybe Minerva or Rosamia. Mm -hmm. Let's talk for a second about whether or not it could be Rosamia. We know that Rosamia is a cyber new type. We've gotten the impression that cyber new types don't feel the same way new types do. Mm -hmm. Quattro kind of talks about this with Four, that there's something different about her. And then that also ties into what Soroko is saying at the very beginning about Rekoa, mm -hmm. because Soroko is talking about this plan that Basque has to accumulate as many cyber new types as possible and get them onto the battlefield. And Soroko's assistant, his, his adjutant, tells him that they're looking into whether or not Rekoa could be a cyber new type. And Soroko says, no, she's normal. But I don't think he means normal like an old type, because we've seen her have new type connections with Camille. So he must mean normal like a non-cyber new type. I also wondered if he didn't make a distinction between Rekoa's sense, which is maybe tied very specifically to people she has a strong emotional connection with, versus the more generalized and general purpose sense of a new type. Hmm. That Rekua may be receptive, like she can connect with powerful new types like Camille, like Soroko, but she herself is not one of them. Right. Mm. This is right before he goes on to say she just really wants to depend on someone. She really wants to rely on someone. And so some connection between her desire for dependence and the fact that whatever abilities she's displayed, he does not consider them new type abilities. It doesn't get very well fleshed out, but the fact that he brings up that second point right on the heels of the first, I thought perhaps they were making a connection. Yeah, that could very well be. And then he goes on to say that she'll be a great pilot for the Jupitress, by which he means for him. She'll make a great asset for him, Sirocco. And so we can see all three of those comments all working together. And Sirocco being Sirocco, he knows immediately that she's not a spy. He can tell right away that he doesn't need to be concerned about her in that way. Which is probably the reason why she's already in a Titan's uniform. I'm sure Sirocco exerted some of his influence. The first five minutes of the episode is dedicated to all of these different developments happening over on the Titan's side. We see that they've combined the Grips colony and the Gate of Zidane, which used to be a Bawaku, and Luna 2 all into one super space fortress. Um, and it's all happening very quickly. We meet Basque and Jamatov, and they're having a high-level conversation about things we don't entirely understand. They mention a colony weapon. The colony laser. And Jamatov talks about like legislative measures he's taken to ensure that Shar's speech to the Federation won't have quite as strong an effect as it might otherwise. We know that Basque has all kinds of plans going on, and it was Basque who dispatched Rosamia. And Jamitov refers to her as a, a good woman, a good girl, which I'm going to come back to later. But we find out that 
despite Jamitov being perfectly willing to accept Soroko's pledges, despite the fact that they must have supported the idea of allying with Axis, this is not, neither of these things have widespread support. Basque makes point one. He says, oh, if you, if you give me free reign, I can take out Ayug, no problem, really fast. And then we can deal with Soroko and Hamanakarn. Mm-hmm. So these are allegiances of expediency, but are not intended to last very long. Yeah. I wonder if this alliance between Basque and Jamatov is real in earnest, or if it's also, like the others, one of mutual convenience for the moment. If Soroko defeats Basque, would Jamatov then be like, ah, yes, thank you for taking out that wicked advisor, my loyal henchman Soroko? Right. Is Jamatov more closely aligned with Soroko, with Basque, or is he some sort of third side of the triangle here? Could you imagine Basque teaming up with Soroko to take out Jamatov? Not really. Hmm. Because in many ways, Basque and Soroko are diametrically opposed. Soroko is actually about having everybody go to space, just in a different way than Ayug is. Whereas Basque is all about Earth power. Is Soroko's faction just, like, more fascistic Ayug? Like, hmm. more centralized authority and control? See, I've always thought of Soroko's faction as a cult of personality around Soroko himself. And Ayug, despite the cult of personality around Quattro, is a little bit broader than that. Ayug is actually a coalition of space independence activists. But Soroko's faction, to some degree, is also represented by Axis. Hmm. But remember, when Soroko and Hamankarn formed their alliance, when Soroko pledged his loyalty to Haman and Mineva, uh, your immediate response was, don't trust him, he is just playing you all for fools. True. I mean, this is what comes of having characters where you can't trust anything they say. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the entire cast? Outside of, like, Camille, Fa, and the kids? I mostly meant Soroko. I think Haman Karn has been very honest. <laughs> I think Basque has been very honest. That's true. Soroko is subtle and manipulative and oily. Well, he's, he's so manipulative that you can't trust anything he says because you can't tell if it's a manipulation or actually his own thoughts and feelings. Whereas Basque is very um, blunt and straightforward. Basque doesn't believe he needs to manipulate anyone because his power is such that he will simply be obeyed. And if he is not obeyed, he will punish. Like, he sees no reason for manipulation. Basque is all stick, no carrot. Soroko is neither stick nor carrot, but the threat of the stick and the promise of the carrot. Yes. But they're very different leadership attitudes. You will obey me because I am in charge versus... Let me convince you to obey me. Soroko desperately wants to be loved. I think that's the difference. See, I don't I don't think Soroko wants to be loved. I think Soroko finds it useful to be loved. Hmm. So much easier to get someone to do what you want if they're devoted to you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not no, wrong. There's no particular sense of like joy from him. There's no sense that he's like, ah, I, I love all this attention. It's so wonderful for me. He gets a little smirk or whatever. 
But I think Basque is completely right that Sirocco believes that he is the smartest, most capable person in the universe. Sirocco doesn't believe in anybody who is superior to him. At least when it comes to presence, he's not wrong yet. <laughs> Every reasonably like self-aware new type who's encountered him has been like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> That presence. <laughs> a lot of this political stuff also plays into Rosamia's whole arc through this episode. All her behavior, all of the things that happen. I think I need to open with my theory. Okay. And then we'll discuss the events and how they build on it. I believe that Rosamia's memory and mind have been heavily manipulated prior to this mission. Very heavily manipulated. With what end? Possibly with the end of kidnapping Mineva, if possible. Possibly with the end of infiltrating Ayug, or in some way subverting or harming some of their pilots. Mm. Maybe both. I bring up Minerva. There's that moment on the rowboat when they're like rowing along and the kids are having fun. And Minerva says, oh, I want to go further into the lake. And Rosamia looks at Haman and is like, oh, do you not like that woman? There's an interpretation of that where Rosamia has picked up on some new type sense. Minerva didn't say that she doesn't like Haman, but Rosamia can tell that she doesn't like Haman. There's also a version of this where it has somehow been sort of implanted into Rosamia hmm. to try to take Minerva away. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, this girl is with these scary grown-ups who are dangerous for her. And if you encounter her, you should try to get her away from these scary grown-ups. Hmm. In that scene, when she first sees Haman, she says something like, that woman feels like an enemy. She feels like Ayug. And this is really important. This is something Rosamia says to herself. And other than that, there would be no reason for you to think that the Rosamia we see at the beginning of the episode, where she's very adult, calm, collected, she's clearly infiltrating the colony, knowing that she's a spy on a mission. She has her little like secret computer built into her briefcase. She even mentions, oh, could Ayug have secret supply lines here in a neutral colony? Right. So there's that Rosamia, and then there's this other personality that she refers to as Rosami, who is like, kind of feels like she's regressed to being a teenager or even younger. She's constantly chasing after Camille, like saying, older brother, older brother, Onichan. And except for this one flash when she sees Haman, you would think that there was a complete switch from the one Rosamia to the Rosami. But here we see that can't be what happened. She still has that internal thought process. Ayug is the enemy. I'm observing what's going on. Humorously, then Haman thinks that Rosamia is Ayug. Yeah, this whole episode is people thinking that other people have some grand plan and know exactly what's going on and are doing all these things intentionally, when in fact, everyone is just bumbling around and running into each other at random. You mentioned Rosamia switching sort of back and forth between 
a seemingly more aware persona and this sort of infantile persona. The other thing that happened repeatedly that brought that home for me is that every time Fa starts to ask questions, Rosami uh, compliments her. <laughs> oh, you're just the sort of girlfriend I always imagined for my brother. You're the perfect girlfriend for him. You guys are so perfect together. And while it is done in the most unassuming, sweetest way, the timing <laughs> betrays a certain amount of deliberate dissembling. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's assume the whole time she's conscious of what she's doing, she is infiltrating this group. Does she really believe that Camille is her brother? I don't know. I would have said no, but there are a couple of things about her behavior that are really irrational. You mentioned her arriving and being in spy mode, if you will. But she gives her luggage to a cabbie and then she leaves it there and takes off after them on the linear car. Yeah. Like, what? She's like, take me to the hotel. And then just walks away. <laughs> and she gets on the car before them, which could have been like very good spy craft. If you know where your target's going to be and you can get ahead of them, they don't feel like they're being followed. But she gives no sense of recognizing them or knowing who they are until they get off the car. She gives no sense of watching or listening to them until they leave. She's just sitting on her laptop. I don't think she's actually following them before she has that moment where she says, brother? I think that she must have been at least a little bit earlier than that. Because when Emma gets off at Lucerne, Emma gets off a stop before because she's going to check on the supplies. Mm -hmm. Rosamia makes a note of that. It's like, ah, Lucerne. But then she stays on to follow the Camille group. I don't know. I did not get the sense that she was following them until she sees Camille and goes, brother? Which would mean that she has to think that's actually her brother. Yeah. If she doesn't, really, then it's an incredible performance. Well, and why bother with all of the solo when they can't even hear or see you? Brother? Brother, is that you? However, she never does any of the things that I would expect a person to do on being reunited with a long-lost sibling. She never once mentions his name. She only ever calls him Onichan. She only ever calls him brother. She never once mentions their dead younger brother's name or their parents. She doesn't talk about what she's been doing since the war. She doesn't ask him what he's been doing since the war. There are no tears. There's no surprise even <laughs> there's only this giddy oh i'm so happy to see you oh mm -hmm. big brother i'm gonna cling to you <laughs> forever yeah he clearly does not know or remember her and she does not react to that in a logical way you know if if i hadn't seen my brother in seven years and then i saw him again and he didn't know who i was I would be trying to figure out what had happened. I would be trying to explain nothing. Yeah, from her, it's just a stubborn, steadfast insistence that he is, in fact, her brother and that photograph. Which, okay, point one, having a photo together doesn't mean you're siblings. And that lays aside possible photo manipulation. Which would have been a lot harder to imagine in the 80s, but was absolutely a thing that could be done. Right. I mean, it... 
I assume that it's a legitimate photograph, but that they're not siblings. Hmm. So you think it's really Rosamia and Camille as children, but not siblings or just lookalikes? I don't know. I sort of <laughs> I sort of think it's them or I don't know. It's hard to say. As sure. you've pointed out, Camille does have memory problems. Rosamia's memory is probably Swiss cheese. She got the old four treatment. Well, four just got wiped completely. I get the feeling Rosamia has been sort of constantly tweaked and manipulated mm -hmm. in a way that nothing that's there is reliable, but it's not necessarily a blank slate. When we encountered Rosamia before, she had this recurring memory of the sky falling. And we sort of speculated that that might not be her memory. That the age might be wrong. Yeah, it was a memory that was very motivating for her. Right. It made her hate Ayug. It made her loyal to the Titans. And we could imagine that such a memory could, in theory, be implanted. That it might be useful for a lot of cyber new types to be given a memory like that. The other thing that leads me to speculate that she's been heavily manipulated is the difference in personality <laughs> between this appearance of her and her appearance previously. She was so fragile before. But also vicious and vindictive and cruel in combat yes like very fierce but sort of desperate for the support and praise of her commanding officers terrified of doing badly terrified of the enemy i mean she clung to Blutark kind of the way she clings to camille in this episode yeah but there there was a sense of emotional volatility here the emotions still feel wrong, but it's very one note. Hmm. There, There is no volatility. It's all the same. Except for that subtle difference between the saccharine clinging way she relates to Camille versus the more like manipulative way she deals with Fa. And then, of course, there's the almost completely different way that she interacts with Haman. I do not understand why Camille brings her back with them. Well, do you actually not understand why Camille does that? Or is this a way of saying that you think it's the wrong move? Because I totally understand why Camille, I have a savior complex for every woman I meet, Bidan, would bring her back to the Argama. I'm just a little creeped out that he, uh, <laughs> as Fob, Fob points out that he's a skirt chaser and he says, what's wrong with that? <laughs> but he chasing this particular skirt by pretending to be her brother? <laughs> that makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> I earnestly don't think Camille is chasing this skirt. Um, Fa does accuse him of being a skirt chaser, and that's valid, and I think that's why he was like, so what's wrong with that? But then he says, but really, you're not giving me enough credit. Like, there is something weird going on here. Camille's trying to figure out what it is, and maybe save her a little bit while he's at it, because that's what he tries to do with every woman. This is what he did with Four, it's what he did with Sarah, like... Join me on the Argama and we'll figure your thing out. Yes. This is the first one who's actually agreed to go with him. But you'd think he'd have learned by now that it's maybe not smart to put your entire ship in danger because a, a winsome lass <laughs> seems to need your help. What do you think the chances are that this is like written in boldface in his profile in the Titans uh, intelligence <laughs> agency computers? Like Camille Badan will do anything to try to save a cute female pilot. 
Assuming your theory is correct, that in fact she has been heavily manipulated, it seems likely to me that she's been manipulated specifically for this mission and probably with the intention of exploiting known vulnerabilities in the Ayug Argama crew. And Camille's middle name might as well be known vulnerabilities. <laughs> this is where I wanted to come back to the comments from the commanding officers about Rosamia being a, a good girl, a good woman. Because I suspect what they mean by that is that she's exceptionally pliable and willing to like undergo whatever weird experimental memory manipulation they deem necessary for her missions. Yeah, I mean, if she has no consistent personality and she's just a series of constructs that they lay over her, of course they would say she's a good girl because she's incredibly useful to them. She's pliable, she's useful, she's exactly what they want her to be. It makes me think of The Tale of Genji, actually. I believe it's arguably the oldest novel ever written. Um, certainly it's the oldest one in Japanese. And the main character, Genji, the Shining Prince, at one point in the novel, uh, decides that he's fed up with all these women. Uh, he's going to create the perfect woman. He's like the opposite of fed up with women, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> How would you characterize him? I mean, he's a womanizer. Maybe a skirt chaser? Maybe. But what's wrong with that? Uh, but he has a discussion early in the novel with some of his friends about what would the perfect woman be and whether or not she exists. And what comes out of this conversation is that his perspective is you'd only get the perfect woman if you essentially like raised her yourself. Creepy. Uh, and the woman he is in love with is married and he's not able to have an affair with her. Uh, and so he... In a semi-culturally sanctioned way, kidnaps her, like, niece. <laughs> She's some relation of the woman he's in love with, and so there's a physical resemblance. Uh, this is all so creepy, but please continue. Yeah, and she's quite young, and he has her, like, raised on his compound, and eventually they get together. Cool. He's only in the first third of the book. I thought it was the tale of him. Yeah, but he he dies pretty early on. <laughs> it's a really long, long book. I've never finished it. I've started it half a dozen times. So that's extremely gross. And I think it's what is going on here psychologically for Basque and Hyman. Like, these are not men who have any appreciation for women as people. I mean, look at the organization they run. So apart from the bigger picture questions about Rosamia. What is she really? Is she trying to infiltrate the Argama? Um, the whole sequence with her, Shinta, Kum, Camille, and Fa is also about Camille's relationship with childhood. Of course, Rosamia is talking to Camille about a childhood that may be fake or may be real, but either way, he doesn't remember it. It's a childhood from which he is separated by some gulf. We also see Early on, when they're in the linear car, Shinta and Kum are entranced by the experience of riding in the linear car, of seeing space whooshing by. It's like they're flying. And this from kids who live in a spaceship. Um, think all the way back to the very first episode of Zeta. And the first time we see Camille, he gets into the linear car and he looks out at space and it's like his mind is blown. It's like the most amazing experience he's ever had. We get the impression this is not the first time that's happened to him. Like, for Camille, 
the wonder of space uh, is an intrinsic part of his childhood experience. And the fact that Camille no longer feels that or no longer experiences that is a really sad sign of his growing up. When Char is fighting the Titans, for the most part, I actually quite liked the way this fight played out. I thought it was really well done. There were a couple of moments where I was like, mm. um, particularly initially, the Titans are very concerned about, oh, we have to be sure not to hit the colony. We have to be so careful of the colony. We have to be really careful. But then once Char has actually grabbed one of them, uh, he just starts shooting even though they are standing on the colony right at that moment. It's like a moment of maximal danger, and he does the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I got the impression that of the two Titans, one was a lot more concerned about mm. shooting the colony than the other. Mm -hmm. And then they flee into the colony, and Quattro follows them. Although they do start shooting at him from inside the colony first. Well, which is another point in the, wait, I thought you were concerned about damaging the colony. Hey, Everyone is concerned about damaging the colony until they themselves are in danger. I'm just saying, if Shar had run at that point, those guys would have been caught. The neutral colony would have been like, hey, what are Hyzaks doing shooting holes in our colony? And the Hyzaks would not have gone on a rampage. Like, they weren't there to destroy the colony. They wanted to fight him. But so he could have taken the fight away from the colony. He chose not to. Shar flee when he can kill? I'm just saying that for someone who spends the entire fight going, don't these guys realize we're in a colony? He didn't have to be in the colony. He could have left. None of what you just said is wrong. I also really like the way this fight plays out. I think having the fight and then cutting back to the perfectly calm, peaceful events on the lake is a really nice direction, which uh, gives me the opportunity to talk briefly about the episode director for this one. Um, as you know, there's the overall director for the series, and then each episode has its own director, who, at least for Zeta, is also the person who does the storyboards. So he lays out how the episode is going to work, and then he oversees the full creation of it. The episode director for this episode is Kawase Toshifume. He handled 10 episodes for Zeta, about one every five episodes. He'll spend most of his career doing episode direction and storyboards and script writing for Sunrise Mecha Anime. Uh, he will eventually, in the 90s, work his way up to being the lead director uh, and will do a couple of remakes of classic Mecha shows. He did a remake for Raydine and one for Vifam. Uh, and then, in the mid-2000s, he was in charge of the project probably most famous in the West, Beyblade. And looking at the other episodes that he directed for Zeta, there is a tendency to do these kind of um, interwoven storylines with cutting back and forth between action and calm. It's pretty neat. When I first watched this episode, I was really weirded out by the look of the Hyzaks. I was like, they're drawn kind of weird. The colors are wrong. All the red piping. And the green is the wrong green. I looked it up. These are not Hyzaks. Oh. These are an upgraded Hyzak custom. Oh. Yes. And now a brief breather from all the heavy discussions. I get the sense that the designers for this show 
really have fun with the casual outfits. <laughs> yes. The outfits in this episode are um, stupendous and we've never seen them before. Fa is wearing like a bright red, bright red, like suit, kind of, kind of the styling feels very like old west. Right. It, well, she's and she has wearing, a bolo tie. She's wearing basically a bolo tie. It's got like a jewel. Huge jewel. And a purple blouse and this shiny red suit. Emma is in a sort of teal dress with a little jacket over it. Camille's sweater keeps making me think of Star Wars. The sweater has like a huge fold over collar. That he's wearing open. Rosamia has like a sleeveless crop top over another shirt. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then Haman Karn's whole team in there, like she's wearing like a black trench coat dress and then all of her team are wearing Swiss lederhosen. I don't know. Some sort of traditional garb. Pants that cinch in at the knee <laughs> or are, are cut to the knee and rather fitted uh, and hats and vests and uh, tall socks or stockings. Uh, the they're one... trying to fit in in space Switzerland. If we didn't mention this already, they're in space Switzerland for this episode. And there's no doubt because they name part of it Lucerne, which is a city in Switzerland. Well, in the whole Alpine feel, and Camille even says, oh, I wonder if the Alps on Earth are like this. So we're in the Swiss Alps, FYI. I love the moment when one of the guards with Haman and Minerva gets into his mobile suit and like throws his hat against the side of the cockpit. He's like, this thing, ugh, <laughs> chucks his hat. Their mobile suit, which they have hidden inside a like brick chimney. I thought it was a grain silo. Oh, it might be, yeah. He just hulks out of the <laughs> silo. <laughs> We're going to talk about that in the research. And now our research. First, the secret fortifications of Switzerland that may have inspired part of this episode. And then, indirect kissing in Japan. As we mentioned in the talkback, Colony 13 is obviously a reference to Switzerland. Everything from city names to architecture to geographic features. But one less obvious moment made me think of the famously neutral country. The moment when one of Minova's guards busts his mobile suit out of the brick silo that was hiding it. I immediately knew I needed to talk about Switzerland's defensive infrastructure. But Nina, I thought that Switzerland was famously neutral. Why do they have <laughs> defensive infrastructure? <sighs> After our first watch through of this episode, but before we started working on the episode proper, listener Renato R. shared an article with us about Switzerland's hidden defenses. I don't remember now what brought it up. Maybe he was thinking ahead, but I used said article in this piece. So thanks, Renato. Previously, I had read about the Swiss defenses in the context of actions taken and things built during and after World War II, but the theory behind it all dates from much further back. It is called the National Redoubt. I will not attempt to pronounce it in French or German. And it is a defensive plan developed by the government starting in the early 1880s to counter possible invasion. A redoubt is a refuge, a fortification within a fortification. Boiled down, the National Redoubt's purpose is to deny any invading force the use of existing transportation infrastructure, 
roads, railways, tunnels, bridges, mountain passes, and so on. Without that infrastructure, the Alps become nigh impassable. This either discourages invasion attempts completely or slows them significantly, allowing plenty of time for the population to shelter within a secured perimeter. It is an example of the military strategy of defense in depth that, quote, seeks to delay rather than prevent the advance of an attacker, buying time and causing additional casualties by yielding space. It relies on the tendency of an attack to lose momentum over time as it covers a larger area. A defender can yield lightly defended territory in an effort to stress an attacker's logistics or spread out a numerically superior force. Fortification began after completion of the Gotthard Railway, an important railway connection between northern and southern Europe. Forts were built at several passes in the Central Alps. But after World War I, there was very little interest in further fortifications. This changed after France constructed the Maginot Line and Czechoslovakia built out their own border fortifications. This, combined with the Great Depression and the need for employment opportunities, made large construction projects more appealing. Design work began in 1935 and construction in 1937. It consists of a border line, self-explanatory, and the army line, which is farther into the center of the country, as a backup and support for the border line. This period also saw the development of the Guisan Plan. General Henri Guisan, recognizing Switzerland's limited resources in terms of both equipment and manpower, thought they should use the difficult terrain at the border, supplemented with forts and other defenses, to keep an invading force out of the open country in the central plateau for as long as possible. This would buy time for orderly retreat to a secure perimeter, and by retreating into the Alps, the government could remain safely in hiding for quite some time. There was some debate about where the lines should be and how large or small the most secure area should be, but for the most part, the military establishment in Switzerland at the time was in agreement about the plan's fundamentals. Planning became practice after the fall of France in 1940. Just days after the French surrender, the Swiss army pulled back from the borderline and further fortified the army line. After many Balkan countries were overrun in April of 1941, Withdrawal to the redoubt seemed the best option. Any military action in the central plateau would be for the purposes of delaying an invasionary force only. Most land would be ceded, including most of the economic and population centers of the country. Only the high Alps would be defended. And as a last resort, important road and rail links would be destroyed to prevent their use by the invading force. Combined with concessions, it was hoped at the time that Axis forces would decide that invasion was too costly, but an invasion was planned and would likely have gone ahead if not for the landings at Normandy and the hard fighting on the Eastern Front. During the Cold War, borderline defense became more aggressive, but control of the Alpine crossings was still central to the defensive plan. There was a high density and variety of barriers and defenses, both passive and active, and less focus on neutrality, more willingness to depend on NATO countries for resupply and additional border defense. This is what the practicalities of all of that look like. In the immediate post-war period, they started building differently. Homes and other civilian buildings were made with thick concrete designed to withstand firebombing. In the 1960s, households were required to build their own bomb shelters or to contribute to the construction and maintenance of community shelters and building codes still require blast shelters. 
blast shelters like the one that our heroes wind up in after the colony gets hold? Indeed. In many towns, underground parking garages can be sealed and used as community blast shelters. It's estimated that by the 1980s, 80 to 115 percent of the Swiss population could be sheltered underground. It's basically recognized if they're going to provide shelter to the population, then every member of the citizenry is entitled to that shelter. So there has to be enough shelter space for everyone. They famously mandate military service uh, for adult men and (laughs) that uh, said men take their service weapon home with them (laughs) after they complete service. This is why Switzerland has one of the highest rates of gun ownership in the world. Like, not as much as the United States, but close. The closest of almost anyone else. Well, and the United States might have a very impressive number of firearms relative to the population, but a small percentage of the U.S. population owns most of those firearms. Whereas it sounds like here, Swiss firearm ownership, much more egalitarian. And the added factor that Although there are some exemptions and alternatives to military service now, you have a huge proportion of the population that has some military experience. I don't know how much of a factor this was in the past. I could not find a date for when they began mandatory service. But there was a recent referendum, and some 75% of the population voted in favor of maintaining it. There are, of course, fortresses, fortification complexes, and batteries. The permanent fortifications in the Alps include things like underground air bases as backups for above-ground runways, reminiscent, say, of Jaburo. But there are also tunnels, bridges, and roads with built-in tank traps that can be deployed very quickly and and relatively easily. There is self-sabotage. There's more than 3,000 points of demolition built into bridges, highways, railroads, other points of infrastructure. And that's what the army will admit to. (laughs) Estimates are as much as twice that. Where possible, bridges, highways, etc. are rigged to fall onto other infrastructure below, like roads or train tracks. Civil engineers are often faced with the dual task of designing and constructing a, let's say, bridge and figuring out the best way to demolish it. Not only that, but artillery pieces are hidden and positioned nearby to prevent the clearing of debris or repairs to whatever has been destroyed. There are some more old-school traps like rigged landslides which are still being maintained and tested and drilled. And finally, the piece most relevant to this episode, camouflage. Bases, bunkers, and hidden equipment in caves and tunnels in the mountains. And when I say hidden bases, I mean entire bases carved into mountains. Dormitories, kitchen and mess hall, field hospital, accommodation for 100 to 300 soldiers for months at a time. That sounds like Kilimanjaro. Bunkers and weapons caches are hidden under barns. Seemingly pretty houses are actually cover for tanks or anti-aircraft guns. Or mobile suits. (laughs) In this century, there has been a lot of decommissioning. Many of the bunkers became obsolete as tensions cooled and the Cold War ended, or due to new developments in weapons technology. 
Some have been converted into museums. Some facilities have been repurposed, uh, leased or sold to private companies. For example, there are some currently being used as data repositories. <laughs> However, many of these defenses are still in place and have been modernized to meet current needs, including installation of bunkers and anti-tank guns at new locations and new automatic mortars in 2003. The fate of the rest of it remains somewhat up in the air. The Swiss Army has gotten smaller and smaller over the past 30 years, but even decommissioning costs money to do safely. Some estimates of safely decommissioning current sites come in at around a billion dollars. There is a book about this that came up again and again in my research, which unfortunately I did not have time to read. But if you'd like more thorough information, check out La Place de la Concorde Suisse by John McPhee. The blurb describes it as a journalistic study of the Army's role in Swiss society, and many of my sources relied on this book <laughs> for their own work. It was published in 1983. Hmm. Clearly, someone on the staff at Zeta was taken with the idea of war machines hidden in these bucolic surroundings. It's dramatic, startling, impactful. Yet these are not Colony 13's defenses that are hidden. There is no sense that neutral colonies in Zeta have armed themselves in order to defend their own neutrality. The closest thing I can think of to an armed colony defending itself was Side 2? Was it Side 2? Where they tried to gas the colony and the mayor like had AU support. I don't remember which side it was, but I remember what you're talking about. The problem, of course, is that neither Ayug or the Titans respect the neutrality of these colonies. And the colony is clearly playing cute with neutrality as well, supplying Ayug, allowing, we assume, allowing Axis Zeon to bring in their mobile suits and allowing Haman and Minerva to shelter there. Absolutely. But what I find interesting about the Swiss position is that they don't expect anyone to respect their neutrality. They expect to have to defend that position in some way. The idea that anyone who wants to try to invade you is going to have to pay dearly for every inch of territory and that the knowledge of this is almost as important as the reality that everyone should know that you have these very elaborate defenses in place and ready. It's the psychological part of the plan. I imagine that if space Switzerland had the same kind of defenses that Earth Switzerland has, probably groups like this Titan's Ambush Squad would be more hesitant to violate the neutrality of their... I want to say airspace, but I'm going to say space space. Space space. Tomino's Gundam has a pretty negative view of neutral colonies, doesn't it? Going all the way back to side six in first Gundam, there's this feeling that neutrality is kind of impossible. It's magical thinking and no side is really going to respect it. Yes. However, in Zeta, we get this additional layer of nuance because we have Camille and we know Camille is very idealistic and naive in many ways. But he has this idea of trying to preserve people and life untouched by war. And where could he do that? But in a neutral colony, it's only in neutral places that we've seen a semblance of normal daily life lived by people who are not involved in the conflict. And Camille definitely wants to protect that. But Zeta has been a sequence of unfortunate failures. 
Camille has never been able to keep the people and the places around him free of the war. At the end of this episode, after Camille brings Rosamia onto the Argama, there's a brief bit of romantic comedy in which she and Fa compete in trying to get Camille to take a sip from their drinks. Rosamia plays it sweetly innocent, Fa gets jealous, and Emma watches the whole interaction with an ambiguous but perhaps meaningful expression. If you've watched enough anime, or if you paid particularly close attention during Nina's research on kissing in Japan back in episode 2.31, then you're probably already familiar with the notion of an indirect kiss, or kansetsu kisu, literally an indirect or second-hand kiss. This occurs when two people's lips touch the same object one after the other, most commonly when sharing a drinking glass or eating utensil, sometimes with a particular piece of food, or with objects like handkerchiefs or musical instruments. It's a pretty common trope in romantic media made in Japan, but a few things about the way it's used here raised my curiosity. For one, Camille seems pretty bewildered by the fuss the girls are making over getting him to share their drinks. He's clearly taken aback when Rosamia shoves the straw into his face, and from his reaction, it seems like the significance of the act may be lost on him. It's certainly not lost on Fa, though, who objects that, as the ideal girlfriend, she can't possibly allow Camille to indirectly kiss another woman. Rosamia responds that it's okay for her to do it, She's his sister, and so it doesn't count. Fa doesn't seem entirely convinced by that, but Camille gives in and he accepts the proffered beverage. He drinks, as Rosamia looks on, in rapture, basically. She has an expression of, of great joy on her face as he's drinking her juice, probably, maybe soda. soda. <laughs> now, besides cropping up in anime, games, and live-action drama, Indirect kissing is a frequent subject of discussion on Japanese-language romance advice forums and in English-language articles written for Westerners who want advice on dating a Japanese person. Now, it's important to note that these sources are anecdotal and aspirational. They are written based on individual experiences and for an audience mostly composed of people who are not actually dating yet. Most of the threads I encountered were some variation on either how to use indirect kissing to secretly hint to somebody that you like them, or we did an indirect kiss, does that mean they're in love with me? Which, oof, flashbacks to high school. <laughs> now this isn't exactly surprising when you think about it. You wouldn't expect people who have gotten to the direct kissing stage of relationships to expend a lot of angst over the indirect kind. Now, because these are anecdotal and aspirational, you should not take them to be a realistic, data-based report on how people actually behave. But they can tell us a lot about what the people who are thinking about indirect kissing are thinking about it. And that's a good way to get a view into how indirect kissing is thought of in the culture as a whole. As well as the group you're talking about makes up a substantial portion of the audience for the show. Absolutely. Now, there are two angles that I want to explore. The first is the gender dimension, and the second is the family relationship. First, gender. The particulars of the indirect kiss happening here are very important to Rosamia and Fa, not so much to Camille. 
And that's borne out in the sources I looked at as well. In general, men are said to be much less concerned with indirect kisses, less likely to notice them when they happen, less invested in contriving situations where they can happen, and more likely to share a bite or a drink without any romantic motivations. A lot of these discussions either describe the indirect kiss in gendered terms as a tactic used by Japanese women, or they're cautioning women against assuming that an indirect kiss is a sign of a man's interest. Although my favorite is probably the one called something like, does he really care about you? The nine ways that a man can respond to an indirect kiss and what they say about him. <laughs> On the other side, there is advice aimed at men telling them to be vigilant in social situations because a woman might use it as a subtle method for indicating her interest. While every couple is unique and courtships can vary, as a general rule, Japanese dating practices involve a substantial feeling-out period that is characterized by gokon, social events where two separate groups of friends, usually one that's all men and one that's all women, get to know each other. If things go well during this phase, individual couples will start pairing off, and they'll begin what we in the U.S. would think of as the early phases of dating meeting for coffee, going to see a movie, walking in the park, and so on. During the initial group exploration phase, it's expected that people will express their interest in subtle, oblique ways. Likewise, similar to how things work in the U.S., it has traditionally been expected that men will take more of the initiative. Of course, this subtle, tactful version of the Gokon that I'm describing is an idealized one, there are plenty of horror stories about boozy, debaucherous gokons where extreme social pressure is used to manipulate and abuse people. But let's say it's the other kind. Things are going well, and people are starting to show interest in each other. The goal of the game is to wind up with one of the other players, but the rules forbid anyone involved from expressing their interest openly. And that goes double for the women. Hence the need for tactics like the indirect kiss and the endless anxiety over what such a thing means. And thus, all of those advice columns and discussion threads. It fits, then, that Fa and Rosamia and maybe Emma are way more invested in the significance of this gesture that's happening than Camille is, even though he's the skirt chaser. So, okay, that checks out. Second, the family relationship. When Fa objects to the intimacy of the indirect kiss, Rosamia asserts that it's fine for her to do this. Presumably, she means because she is, or purports to be, Camille's sister. Fa doesn't seem very much reassured by this. So how are indirect kisses viewed within the family relationship? Going back again to Nina's earlier research on kissing generally, the ethnographic studies she cited found Little to no evidence that family members gave any special significance to the act of touching their mouths to the same intermediary objects while, for example, sharing food or drink. To put it in another way, indirect kissing as an action is not inherently romantic or erotic. Removed from the romantic context, it's an everyday occurrence with no special significance. I would caveat that it is a gesture of intimacy, but not necessarily romantic intimacy. It can also be like familial intimacy to share some food, like an ice cream cone or something. So it still denotes closeness, just not inherently romantic or sexual closeness. 
That's really important. And what's really interesting about this is how aggressive Rosamia is being here. She must have missed the memo about this indirect kiss being a subtle, covert gesture, because she is shoving it in his face and demanding that he have some. Actually, she's doing here what she's been doing ever since she spotted Camille. She's aggressively forcing a level of physical and emotional intimacy with him way out of proportion, either with their actual relationship, they've just met each other, or with the one that she's claiming that they're long-lost siblings who have just been reunited. Her forcefulness in this regard has put Camille and Fa off balance all episode long. It's like just rude enough to push the boundaries, but not so rude that anyone can say anything about it. While it's an open question whether she's doing this innocently or deceptively, she's definitely doing it. So it's nice here at the end to see it expressed physically as she puts a hand on his chest and she shoves her drink at his face while he kind of half-heartedly tries to fight her off. In another tie-in to some previous research, uh, wanting or demanding intimacy in excess of what's sort of like appropriate to the relationship context is common in people with insecure attachment. And remember, she did something very like this with Blutark. She didn't try to get him to drink her drink, but she did like put her hands on his chest and sort of force a level of physical intimacy that was way inappropriate given their relationship. During the talkback, Nina talked about the difficulties of having a character who is so manipulative, so deceptive, that you don't know what it is that they want or when they're being truthful. And we have that same problem with Rosamia here. We can see that it makes her ecstatic when Camille accepts the proffered beverage. But we don't know why. Is it because she's trying to create an intimate emotional connection with him because she thinks he is her older brother? Is it because, as Fa seems to suspect, Rosamia is actually trying to create a romantic attachment with Camille? We don't know. We don't know how much of it is deceptive, how much of it is in earnest. Maybe she's just doing this to keep Camille off guard, to make it easier for her to infiltrate the argument. Maybe it's completely and totally honest. We'll have to pay attention in the episodes to come and see if we can figure it out. Next time on episode 41, The Point of No Return, we cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 40 and Another Orphaned Child. That girl ain't right. Feeling blue. Sirocco mansplains feelings. Fly casual. Sasuga Zeta. Camille experiences all five stages of grief. You can't save them all. There is a difference between good things and bad things, actually. You can't go home again. And, and this has never been more true of an episode, you will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. 
Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or continue to share your wrong Gundam opinions in a safe and socially responsible way by standing in the middle of your apartment and shouting, All Gundams are boys, all Methuses are girls. We won't hear you, but maybe you'll feel better. The Titans News Network interns were played by MSB patrons Crimson, Lieutenant Birdman, Kurt, Hobbs5226, Sean, aka Quantum Noddle, Thunder Okami, Paragon, Renato, and Murph. The Wrong Gundam Opinion was suggested by Arkdoppler. Thank you all. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I didn't send you the script, did I? No. <coughs> that delivery was hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting better at your long sentences. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. You're going to bleep? Yeah. Did my notes. I did. I have kind of a funny opening, but it may not like it may be a little like off the rails, so I'm gonna say it. Try it. Yeah. Let me know if you have any response to it. Oh snap. Just bleep me, it'll be funnier. I will. Shinta keeps repeating it over and over again, like, huh, Camille's little sister. Camille has a sister. Huh. She's so pretty. Never mind about parents or any other family or what I've been doing since then. Ready to talk about indirect kissing? Uh, Switzerland first. But I'm not done with Switzerland, so... Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm... I totally am ready to talk about indirect kissing. I don't want to step on your toes, but mm -hmm. I was... Um, it's very much in keeping with all of her behavior. Ow, so my far. toes. And then here I got to the part of my written outline where it says, and end it somehow. <laughs> this is all fascinating so far. <laughs>
That's a good one. It's really good. What kind of word do you want? I don't know.